Um, well, remember Tyler said something in the beginning, in the introduction to his message, and he said this is the beginning of a portion of scripture that is theologians call it the dot dot dot. What do theologians call it? That is true. Who, who knew? Haley, you don't count. Dana counts. One point for the Dooley. Well, Dooley-Venant combination. One point for us. Okay, now I'm going to read this passage of Scripture. Um, and uh, I'm going to ask you, so you can read it with me. I'm going to ask you, what is the primary God idea here? Okay? When I teach young teachers, I always ask them, find the big God idea. And it's especially important with these texts because they seem a little discombobulated. They seem a little bit, you know, just random ideas. Like Jesus was sitting thinking, okay, let me tell you about that. Hmm, okay, now let me tell you about that. Or is there a central God idea theme that permeates its way through? And remember what Tyler said? The theologians call this passage of the text the way, meaning it's Jesus teaching them how to live as disciples and how to go to the cross. Bear those things in mind. Let's read it. It is Mark chapter 9, and we are picking up in verse 38. Teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Aha! Do not tell him to stop, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us, us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. Verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, remember um, Jesus had taken a little a little being, a little toddler, a little Caleb, wherever he is right here, plonked him on a chair, sat down with his disciples, and we're assuming a few others, and started teaching. This little kid is still in the center of the conversation. So if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone was hung around their neck, and they were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to stumble... Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell hell where the worms have eaten them do not die um, and the fire is not quenched everyone will be salted with fire everyone will be salted with fire salt is good but if it loses its saltiness how can you make it salty again have salt among you and be um, the ESV says have salt in you and be at peace with each other so here's the million dollar question what's the big God idea Anyone? What do you think the big God idea is? What's the thread that goes through that we can hang these truths onto? Hang out, be little hooks for our theological conversation. Good. Anyone else? No, silence is not it. Silence and solitude, that's not one of them. Well, that's what happened to me this week. 
because Dana was going to teach and I said to her, we'll switch up. She said, Dad, I'll do divorce next Sunday. I said, you know, that is a beautiful idea. Why don't you teach as a millennial on divorce and I will take this text. And then I read it. And I thought, really? It's about cutting off hands, pulling out eyes, cutting off feet, putting millstones around people's heads. Uh, really next? Is, is, is that my text for this week? How on earth could this even be in the Bible? It doesn't seem to make sense. Well, then I went to the clever people. People who write books, people who lecture at universities, people who read the ancient Hebrew and the Greek. And the prevailing thread, dear friends, the prevailing thread, the clue to that is found in the subtitles of the NIV. Whoever is not against us. This is a plural passage. This is not a singular truth. This is not a truth for an individual as much, although it is, as a truth about us. There's an usness to this. And then the second subtitle is causing others, you can put in brackets, causing others to sin. So here we have this little us and others and instantly it piques our interest because we're stepping into the world of community. Remember Jesus is about to go. When Meryl and I, uh, some years ago, my, our spiritual mentor uh, as leaders was dying. He ended up dying twice. They resuscitated him, gave him two new uh, livers. The first one didn't take, the second one did. And amazingly, this is, I don't know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, he's still alive and in Australia. But his stomach was big. He was dying of, of a liver condition caused by a blood issue he had. And uh, in fact, he was so bad, he was deteriorating so poorly that we, he, he called us out onto the patio. We'd gone to help them move. They were moving to Australia where he would get uh, medica medical treatment. And um, I remember him sitting there and I thought, whatever's about to happen is probably one of the most important moments in my life as a disciple. Because whatever this man who found me as a 24-year-old crazy wild preacher without any sense of order or shape, and he kind of put me together to whatever measure I had become a leader. And at that moment, he was going to pour his kind of final words into Merrill and I. And I remember sitting there and he, he spoke very uh, stalteringly, softly. He would like say a few words, then he would breathe. Then he would say a few more words as he looked to me and he spoke to me, paused, waited, spoke some more, then to Merrill. And we thought, wow, this is, these are words we have to bury into our hearts. And I think this is the moment that Jesus was trying to recreate. You know, with COVID, um, and we, we're not through yet, as Joe said, I really do feel this passage is incredibly important to us. Because if Jesus was building community before his departure, he wasn't sending out a scattering, a smattering of rampantly loose individuals doing their own thing. He was shaping, forging, and forming them into community. And he puts a little child in there, and I'll comment on that in a moment. And he says, I want you to understand what community is. My father's heart for us has been broken during COVID. Not so much the challenge of sickness. Several of you have been sick with COVID and I'm not making light of the condition because people have died. But for me, what the enemy has done has, get it, has got it right to scatter people. You know I speak to pastors all over the world on a regular basis. 
and the overriding narrative I get from them is the pain they feel because people have been scattered into their own individualistic world and here in Southern California it's an idol in the rampant individualism is an idol don't touch me don't tell me what to do I do my own thing you do you I do me are all subtitles that make up our daily thinking and conversation and the problem is, is that it has led to an incredible amount of scattering and fragmentation. You and I know as we look around the room, people who were with us who aren't. And I'm not saying necessarily they've all fallen off the wagon, so to speak, but the pain and the trauma of the individualism that it has produced. Now, David Garland in his writing on this passage says this, Jesus uses the child as a symbol of the little ones who are little esteemed, who are needy, who are socially invisible and easily ignored, who can be hurt and dominated without anyone knowing or protesting. They are the untutored, the persons on the fringes, the one whom no one misses when they're absent from worship. Jesus puts this little kid down and he says, now let me show you what is community all about. This breaks itself up. This passage breaks itself up in three very easy little narratives. And what I want to do is just walk us through them. The text we all know, but the meaning, can we allow it to drill down just a little bit more than usual? Why is Jesus building community? Well, he knows that the future community is absolutely essential. He knows that. That Peter, James and John need each other for what is to come. But he also knows that it is a redemptive community that is our most powerful apologetic. Let me explain it this way. And I'll land here, I'm going to say it again right at the end. The strongest way we communicate a true Jesus story is by how we live our lives. Jesus said it himself. Well, the scripture says, they will know you by the love you have for each other, each other, each other, like a resounding echo, like reverb on the microphone, each other, each other, each other. It's still our loudest apologetic. Our loudest apologetic is not Genesis 1, was it seven days or representative of thousands of years? That's not our most powerful apologetic. Being able to explain the empty tomb and the risen Savior is not our most powerful apologetic. Our most powerful ap apologetic is the power of community. Please don't undervalue it, nor the vital part that you play in it. Remember the story of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet in the Old Testament. And so God calls him aside one day and says to him, Zeke, I've got a job for you, buddy. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to build a model of Jerusalem. So Ezekiel builds the model and he says, what I want you to do now is based on Israel's sin. I want you to lie on the left hand side next to this model. And I want for every year that they've been in rebellion, I want you to lie for a day, 390 days or 60. Let me check my notes, 390. So here's Ezekiel the prophet. He's going to lie on one side for 360 days declaring to everyone else this is what God thinks of your sin and rebellion. Then I want you to turn over and lie on your right hand side for 40 days representing the 40 years you've been in rebellion. A total of 400 days. And God says, well, Ezekiel, just in case you get a bit tired or disgruntled, I'm going to tie you up there. You won't move. 
for 360 days you are going to lie on your side because the city needs to know what I God think about their sin and rebellion it's not easy being or convenient being a redemptive community it's inconvenient it's uncomfortable it's scratchy but God ties us to community it's your and my ecology it's where we blossom, where we grow, how we do well in Jesus. It's not a, a, a me, I, mine walk. And it's our loud, loud, loud apologetic. So, let's have a look at the text in the light of my idea. And Mark chapter 9, you with me? And I, and I want to apologize for my passion, but I actually can't. I've just walked with Jesus for 44 years. Joe, did you see that? 44 years. He keeps correcting me. Because I keep saying 42. But Meryl was 42 for about four years. Whenever people asked her and they said, okay. <laughs> but, but, but you see, I, this is a most beautiful thing. And every one of us in this parking lot have a reason not to be engaged in community. Every one of us is lying on our side saying, God, this is too hard. This is too uncomfortable. It's so inconvenient. Every one of us has a reason. But when revelation hits us like a two by four on the forehead and realize that God creates an ecology, an ecosystem in which I will fully blossom and in which the world around me will come alive. You know, one of my closest friends is a guy called Terry Fouchet. I met Terry in 1981. I just come out, I was still in the army actually, and I arrived at the warehouse, which was the church we were in in the 70s into 80s. And uh, he walked up to me, he said, so you're Chris Vina? And I said, yes, I am. He said, I've heard a lot about you. I said, oh. And uh, he said, we're going to become friends. I thought, well, that's a little obnoxious. How do you know I'm even going to like you? Well, we are. We ran many marathons together. We ran one ultra marathon, 50 miles. We ran that together. But we were on team together. And we disagreed on team together. In fact, we had a leaders meeting one day where he and I were actually shouting at each other. All the wives left and went and made coffee while he and I were having a go at each other. You see, there's every reason why Terry and I should not like each other, never mind partner together, never mind preach the gospel around the world. But when you and I understand the power of community and how God knits us and joins us together, those things are trivial. It's a passing moment. So you've had a difference. So you've disagreed. But when we understand God joins us in community, we lie on our side for 360 days. We lie on our other side for 40 days. And God ties us in there because of the need to communicate and be a preferred community. It makes a whole lot of sense. All right, so let's quickly go through this as I've tried to say three times. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving our demons in your name and we told him to stop. I love that verse because he was not one of us. Hey, he's not an elite. He's not one of the 12. He's trying to play off the bench, but you haven't even chosen him to be on the bench. How can he just go and drive our demons in your name? So I told him, buddy, you stop this now. When you're part of the creme de la creme, then you can deliver people, but not before. And Jesus, I think there's such a tender moment. He says, do not stop him. 
For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about us. For whoever is not against us is for us. What a curious phrase, reversal. Whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. Okay, what can we extract out of this? I want to speak about John for just a moment, because I think some of us, me too, fall into this category. John was, by his own definition, the most loved disciple. That's what he said about himself. It's quite a humble thing to say. But I also think John, in psychological terms, was a pleaser. Now, for those of you a little less familiar with that, in the attachment theory, which is the theory Merrill uses as a therapist, the pleaser is normally someone who comes from a family of origin with parents who are either overprotective or highly critical, one or the other. The parents are always hovering. Don't, don't do that. I saw a little um, Charlie, a Peanuts cartoon the other day. And Lucy and Charlie are kind of lying next to a tree. And she says, what's happened to young people today? And his reply was something like, first it was helmets. Then it was something like overprotective parents. And now look at what we've got. Something along those lines. So here we have overprotective parents hovering. Oh, don't, don't, don't fall, don't fall. Put shoes on all the time. No, 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 please, please. Put a jersey on. It's 72 degrees. Put a jersey on. Put a sweater on. Put a jacket on. Overly protective or highly critical. You suck. You'll never amount to anything. What happens? The child grows up. And the child's preoccupation is to please their parents' anxiety or to manage their parents' irritability. I want to keep my parents happy. They're either super anxious, always nervous, something's going to go wrong. Have you got a fever? Have you got a fever? Let's get the temperature. Or manage our parents' irritability. Therefore, the pleaser finds relief for their own anxiety by making others happy. Folks, I grew up like that. Maybe that's why I saw it in John. What happened to John? John had let Jesus down. This little kid was throwing himself into the fire. The disciples couldn't do the thing. And for a pleaser, there's nothing worse than the person in authority not being happy. Please don't be that with me. Please don't read your spiritual well-being by the way I relate or react to you. Because the pleaser's most important thing is to make others happy. They have an over-realized sense of other. The other person, the other situation is, is way more important than they are. So they relieve their own anxiety by keeping the other close and contented and happy. You, sir, ma'am, me, live therefore with a chronic sense of worry. We are guilty of overgiving, And if it's not seen, it leads to resentment. An over, an over sense of concern about the other person's happiness. I remember being in Delhi with Merrill. We landed about 11 o'clock in India. And um, I went to get the luggage. And I felt very vulnerable. We didn't know how. We were flying up to Dehradun the next morning, which is in Pradesh, up near the Himalayan foothills. And we didn't know where we were going to stay that night. I thought we could stay at the airport. We get there and the airport says it shuts down at 11.30 and opens up again. And we had to get across Delhi to the local domestic flight. 
and I was feeling incredibly insecure and vulnerable and are you okay and the whole time I was looking for my luggage and then I'd look up and are you okay are you okay and Meryl's standing there loving the moment seeing all these beautiful people and I'm the anxious one because I'm the pleaser see John wanted Jesus's approval now dear friends the lesson in here is that we cannot find our approval and identity by how other people relate to us John had to do that. The same John was on the Isle of Patmos by himself. He had to grow out of the sense of pleasing and wanting everyone else to be happy, to live and to write the incredible apocalyptic book called Revelation. But what does Jesus do? Jesus offers a gentle rebuke. You shouldn't have done that. I mean, I, mean, I think John was stoked. He was like, dude, you know what we did? We shut the dude down. You shouldn't have done that. You, you shouldn't have done that. Because Jesus goes after the brokenness in John's soul. Please hear me carefully because I want to speak as a father on this point particularly. You know, generally it can be said that the millennial generation finds taking correction very difficult. I've only rebuked, to the best of my knowledge, four people in our community in our three years story. Two left the church, two stayed. And I watched the outworking of that very closely and carefully. Now I understand that leadership, maybe in the past, has not been trustworthy for you. Absent dads, abusive fathers or whatever, but the difference here was the love and affection with which Jesus addressed him. Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. I love that. He who hates reproof is stupid. You're so stupid, says the Bible. I mean, it's like my little grandkids. They, they, they said the S word. And you're thinking, well, what is this word that could be so bad? And it's stupid, you know. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. And then the great philosopher anime. Well, my son's introduced us to anime. And the quote comes, hurt me with the truth, but never comfort me with a lie. You see, folks, all of us, through injury, through blind spots, through rebellion, through stubbornness have huge roadblocks in our Jesus journey and if you never have anyone speak into that area of your life you will never grow up whole I don't want to spend too much time on it but I do want to make an appeal it's hard it's hard taking a rebuke for all of us including me but to position ourselves and to open up our hearts and say, Jesus, through whoever, would you speak to me? I gave Meryl my notes to read this morning. What was I doing? I was setting myself up for rebuke. She came down and I'm like, I'm washing the dishes. See, I'm a pleaser. I want to make her happy. Cleaning the dishes makes her happy. And she comes down and she doesn't say anything initially. And I'm like, hmm, okay. Um, wait, just, just chill. I just wait a little bit. And then she said, I'm not sure what the big God idea is. I've worked so hard to find the big God idea. It's there. It's there. No, you see, okay. 
and, and I'm not sure there's flow. I'm not sure. See, what is it doing? It's helping the music notes to fly off. It, it, it's, it's, it's helping to see what I'm not seeing. Are you with me? I don't want to spend any more time here, but I am asking that we open our hearts up to rebuke and correction. It is so vital, even at my age. You know how funny it is between you and me. Don't let them listen to you. That at a staff meeting, Tyler and Sam, two 25-year-olds, sit and we debrief Sunday. Green, yellow, red. What do we love? What was okay? What was like, uh, 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 let's not repeat it. And I submit myself to two 25-year-olds to critique my message. 27. 27? You get older? 26? All right, you didn't tell me. Do you see, do you hear what I'm saying? When, 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 what's that? Oh no, I did. I actually forgot his birthday. How embarrassing. I, I, I forgot his birthday. I remembered, except on the day. And I spoke to him. And I saw him. And I didn't say, Happy birthday, Tyler. What kind of guy am I really? I had to, I had to take him out for dinner. All right, so are you with me? I think this first idea is so important. See who you are and let God work in you for the sake of togetherness. And then understand the power of rebuke because it takes us on to wholeness. All right, next please. Whoever, um, here we go, verse 42 to 48. I'm not going to read it all because time isn't my friend. What do we do with the stumbling thing? Well, theologians argue two ways. They say you either a literalist, which means Jesus actually means what he said. If you, if you look on a woman lustfully, move your eye. If you do inappropriate things with your hands, cut them off. If your feet goes to places they shouldn't go through, remove them. Hmm, that's a little tricky. Because the Bible also says that we're not to mutilate ourselves. So to take it as a literal instruction could be problematic but I can understand why some might want to go that way but what if Jesus is using hyperbole hyperbole simply means that we the teacher exaggerates to make the point known he really is driving a strong hard bargain here so that he wants you to understand how important this really is remember the little kid is still sitting here so Jesus I think uses hyperbole because he feels so incredibly strongly. He says, I do not want you to stumble these little ones, and I'll comment on that in a moment, which means to let them fall into sin or to fall away from the faith. Now think about that for a moment. Is there anything that you or I do that disempowers others to get them to stumble? And Jesus says this, it's better than a millstone around their neck. Now, in the movie Mutiny on the Bounty, you see it very powerfully. Those who die, they wrap them in the cloth, they put a rope around their neck and a big millstone and they drop them over the edge so the corpse doesn't float. This is a very, very strong statement. You see, Jesus really means not to let anything happen that firstly affects those like the little child. Let me try and explain it this way. A healthy community lets the strong lead the weak. That's where the hand comes in. There's my little grandson, wherever he is. How do we enjoy letting him hold our hands? And as he started to stumble and stutter his way through, Meryl walked away from him yesterday. She went to get something. And he literally took the, 
the bird flying position. He threw his arms back and wobbled his way after her as fast as his chubby little legs could cope with. See, what is the picture here? The strong take by hand the weak. The mature walk ahead of the immature, the feet. I'm sure you've done it somewhere along the line. You've gone out to the beach and you've gone out in some rocky outcrop and the tide starts creeping in and you're getting nervous, maybe Laguna Beach or somewhere. And, um, and, and maybe you were a little kid and your dad or mom or older brother or sister says, just follow me, jump where I jump to, follow my steps. That's the high appeal that I think Jesus has here. The strong don't say, oh, I don't need this. What? Lakers game six, Tuesday Sunday night. No. We're going to church. We're going to go and hang and worship with everyone else. You want to come? Yeah, come and hang with me. It's fine. But he's already struggling in his faith. He's already doubting. He's already uncertain. He already doesn't know if God answers prayers. Says the strong believer, oh, don't worry about that. Come and watch the Lakers game six because LeBron's the man. Or the Dodgers tonight, right now. See, Jesus says, do you understand what you are doing to them? Put a millstone around your neck and go down. Cut your leg off. Pull your eye out. That's as serious as Jesus takes this moment. And then at the wise see for the blind, the eye. What you don't understand, let me help you understand what it is. Do you understand, folks, the beauty of what Jesus is trying to explain here? Community, the strong, help the weak. The mature, help the immature. The wise, help the blind. Now again, my tender heart, if I must be brutally honest, and I hope you give me the grace. I've watched some of those who've walked with the Lord for a while, especially during COVID, make community participation optional. But they rarely go down alone. Because they take the weak or the immature or the blind with them. Jesus says that's not good. He says, in fact, you know what I'll do with people like that? And I'm sorry, this is the text. I've tried every which way not to preach this. He says, I'm going to send them to hell. Now, if you're a literalist, that literally means if you're one of those people, you will end up in eternal judgment and damnation, whatever that looks like to you. I'm not sure Jesus is actually saying that here. The Valley of Hinnom was one of the most hated places in Jerusalem at the time. At that time, it was the place where they took the trash and there was a constant fire when they burnt all the, the city trash. It stank, it smelt, it had a kind of a, a, a cursed feel to it because in Second Chronicles and Jeremiah, it speaks of the kings going there and sacrificing children to gods. So the Jewish people hated it. The fire represented stench and 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 I mean, let me use trash as the softest, softest option and the place, the ultimate place where kings sacrifice their children like abortion. And Jesus said, I'm going to rather send you there. I don't know whether you read this passage literally or with hyperbole, but we have to understand Jesus looking at this little kid 
was about as sober and weighted and pointed in his teaching in this moment, which is repeated in the other Gospels but John's, as he could be. He says, I want you to understand how I will treat this. See, folks, the older you get, the more you realize that life is living for the benefit of others. Get married, and you realize that pretty quickly. It's about living for the benefit of others. We went on honeymoon. Meryl, the first day we're at the hotel, and I'm ready for action. I mean, let's, let's get on. Let's get moving now. There are things to happen. And Meryl says, I'm just going to hang up my clothes. I'm like, what? I am blooming 22 years old. I have waited as long as I care to remember for this moment. And you want to hang up your clothes. Yes, and she hangs up, puts her little you know, underwear in the little drawer and T-shirts. And she says, aren't you unpacking? I think, what for? It's in, it's in a thing called a bag. And, and as our week progressed, it just mushroomed. It just got bigger and wider. And I'm totally happy because look at this ordered chaos. I mean, how more ordered can you be in your chaos? See, marriage... It's about living for the benefit of others. Now, Meryl really loved me. She would have hung up my clothes. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. You're glad you didn't, my love. Yeah. Sorry, I needed a humorous moment. Hopefully that sufficed. But it is the benefit of living for others. That's the beauty of this passage. That's the beauty of this text. So what do we have so far? We have the idea of us acquiring an identity by letting Jesus work in our hearts and seeing the power that others matter. We see the empowerment of community with the strong, with the weak, the mature, with the immature, and the wise, with the blind. All right, quickly I end kind of with verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. What a great phrase. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good if salt has lost if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, the ESV says, and be at peace with one another. All right, very quickly. This is about building community, and it starts with us dealing with our own brokenness. Then it deals with us living for the benefit of others, that others matter more than me. It's a beautiful thing. It's living out Jesus in the lives when the world looks at us, they just are amazed. How can you live so differently? It's not possible. And then this third section deals simply with the whole idea of salt and its saltiness. We know the clever people say that salt has seven things that it does. And I'm trying to land, so forgive me for just pick, cherry picking a few ideas here. Salt preserves, salt purifies, and salt provides flavor quickly two stories and I think I'll end there I was sitting in a car with one of the young guys many years ago when I was still leading a church in South Africa Graham was about 22 23 years old I was probably about 29 or so 20 30 and there was a young guy who walked past and kind of yacked at me about something and Graham turned to me and he said, Rory really like, loves you, doesn't he? And I said, yes, Graham. And then I heard my mouth say this, but he'll only follow me when I offend him. And it's one of those things I've thought on since then. Rory, incidentally, whom I did offend, 
ended up taking on the church that Merrillai handed over to him. See, he stuck around. And I've did to Rory what I've not done and probably will never do to any of you. He's bigger than me. And I grabbed him by his cuff one day and I put him up against the wall because he preached and offended Jesus and the church. And I said, if you ever treat the bride of Christ like that, I will take you out. I was young. What did I know? But you see, Rory overcome the offense because he knew God had knit our hearts together. He overcame the disappointment of actually this guy is just human like the rest of us. And he ended up leading that church, growing it from a thousand to two and a half thousand. You see, saltiness is when we allow the fire. It's, it's, it's being, what is the verse again? It says, everyone will be salted with fire. Such an interesting phrase. It means that something will happen that will burn us. Our community will burn us, but we will come out of that with a far more beautiful fragrance, purified and preserved because we've let community shape us. We cannot let salt lose its saltiness. You know, I had to have a history story in here, don't you? In the 13th century, Kublai Khan ruled Marco Polo, uh, ruled um, China from the sea on the east all the way to the deserts in the west. Probably the largest geographical empire ever. And Marco Polo became a presence in his court. We all know the story, seen the movie and swum in the pools. And he tested Marco Polo, history tells us, in every which way he did. But Marco Polo actually held his testimony as a Jesus lover through all of it. And eventually one day he called Marco Polo in and he said, Marco Polo, I have tested you and I have not found you wanting. I've seen the fruit of your love for your Messiah. And he said, I want that in my courts. I want you to send back to Italy and send a hundred Bible teachers who will teach my court. Marco Polo sent the message back. The tragedy was at that time, Italy and the church and the Vatican was at war with itself. They were so preoccupied with their division and their conflict and the power and the wealth that came with all of that, that they did not have time to find, train and send a hundred Bible teachers to the courts of the most powerful empire of the day and arguably the world has ever known. 28 years later, the court sent one man and when he arrived at the court Kublai Khan said to him and I quote it's too late I have grown old in my idolatry can you imagine how different the world would have been if instead of fighting each other instead of losing its saltiness instead of losing what God created the church to be not a place of power but of humility not a place of wealth but of generosity China would have been Christian, arguably the largest Christian country ever. And one man was sent way too late. What have I tried to do tonight? I've tried to stir our hearts towards the power of community as the greatest and most powerful apologetic. It means the greatest gift we can give the world is by how well we live Jesus. One of my favorite Africa stories, and I land with this, is of a 
man who arrived to preach the gospel and was never allowed to. This is hundreds of years ago. And he arrived at a village. I think it was Africa. Forgive me if I'm wrong. And he was never allowed to. But he decided not to go home in disappointment and despair, but to stay there and to live Jesus. And so he did everything in the village that no one else wanted to do. Here, a European missionary in, I think, an African community. He died without one convert. And I wonder how many of his... Uh, peers would have considered his life so worthless without one convert when the next wave of missionaries came through and they started preaching about Jesus all the village said no we know him what do you mean you know him no no he was here with us what do you mean he was here with and they took him to a little burial site on a hill outside of the village he said you see Jesus was here with us the man you're describing was here with us we know him our forefathers knew him. Our forefathers lived with him. I think that's probably the greatest parable describing Jesus' teaching. Wholeness, empowerment, and saltiness. Building community that represent Jesus so well. Please don't walk alone. As the old hymn writer said, you'll never walk alone. Don't walk alone. Find your ecosystem, find your people, and do life in community. Please, not a periodic pop-in. I don't measure people's love for Jesus by how many Sundays they come a month. Because we all have stuff that we have to deal with. But it's the hard conviction God has put me in this community and I am in. The gospel transforms me in community. Would you pray with me, please? If you can, grab someone's hand. Please don't feel under pressure. I don't want anyone to feel awkward. And don't stretch yourself like a seven-foot Anthony Davis defending the hoop, you know. Father, I thank you for the person to the left and the right of me. I thank you that you brought us into community to do life together and to represent the beauty, wonder, and the majesty of Jesus to a broken, fallen world. Not to be like them, not to speak like them, act like them, dress like them, think like them, but to be gloriously, wonderfully different. Representing the redeeming work of Jesus. Sorry about the times, dear Jesus, when we let a moment's injury or heartache separate us from the very community ecosystem you have given to us we want to be the strong holding the hands of the weak the mature putting footprints for the immature we want to be the the wise that see for the blind we don't want the stench of Gehenna all over us we want the saltiness that comes with fire when our relationships are tested we hold firm when we forgive because we are forgiven when we love because we are loved when we care because we are cared for that's what jesus does to us 
I thank you for these precious people. I feel so honored tonight to speak with such passion to a community that loves you so deeply. My words will be forgotten, and so they should be. But it's your revealed truth that will remain. Please reveal yourself in these words. And let us hear, see, and walk in these beautiful footprints. We're done. Tonight afterwards, for those of you who do want to get prayer, please feel free to sidle across. There'll be some prayer peeps that will pray with joy for you. Let the Spirit of God speak. Forget my words, forget my stories. I'm fine with that. But don't forget what God has gently niggled away at your heart tonight and me. And let that find a deep anchor in our soul. God bless you. Hopefully some of you can hang around. If you're not in a, a home group, if you can have a chat to Samuel and or Sam or Samantha. And then uh, she can en engage you and integrate you into that. God bless you all. I actually feel like we should have had a song, but we didn't have everything set up. So that's my bad. All right. God bless you all. Wonderful seeing you tonight. Thank the Lord there was no rain.